This is the My Top 10 TV podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Powell, TV producer and sometime radio host, and I welcome you to a brand new podcast. My Top 10 TV, a stunningly simple idea. A headline guest each week is invited to compile their Top 10 TV shows of all time, and we chat through each of them and discover why these shows have made it into their Top 10. And most importantly, which TV show have they chosen as their number one? Now this week we've got a brilliant guest, not only does he have a hugely popular podcast, he also writes reviews for TV shows, updates on TVs and pretty much everything else TV related. It is the one and only Luke from Custard TV. Enjoy. You are listening to my Top 10 TV podcast. Send us your Top 10 TV shows, list them from 10 to 1 and we will read out the best. So why don't you kick off for us Luke and um, give us your, um, your, your number 10. So my number 10 is a show that I don't think really had much of a life in the UK, which is a shame. It's an NBC sitcom called Parks and Recreation, which was initially set up to be a spin-off from uh, the US office. And it is filmed in that mockumentary style as became popular after the office in the US became this massive hit. And it's it's about this group of people who work for local government, this woman Leslie Note played by um Amy Poehler who is so in love with her job and her hometown and and the people that work around her and then the guy who works with her Ron Swanson who's worked in local government but hates anything to do with the government and it's it's just it's a really it's one of those sitcoms that you can stick on and it's really warm really funny the cast is brilliant together They've all gone on to great things. Chris Pratt, of course, is now in the, I think it's the Marvel with yep. other things. Yep. Aubrey Plaza is one of my favourites. She's gone on to great things. So, yeah, Parks and Rec is just, I think it's completely underrated and uh, and it's just one of my favourite shows. I, when I was creating the list, I was trying to be very, oh, it has to have been perfect from beginning to end. And this is one of those shows where, the first season you could almost skip it because they they weren't sure of the tone hmm. a bit like the first season of the US office it very much took a while to find its feet but when it got there it it just goes from strength to strength and i would recommend it to anyone i think it's on um prime video and now tv it's just I... it's just really warm and inviting and and sweet without being saccharine and a very talented cast Yes, no, I think you've absolutely nailed it. That it is, um, first of all, it is one of those that you can kind of switch on at any time and kind of find yourself chuckling along. Obviously, breakout stars like, um, you know, kind of Chris Pat, who's now gone on to, as you say, the Cinematic Universe and uh, the Jurassic Park franchise. So, I mean, in, in terms of a career trajectory, uh, it's done him uh, a world of favours. Considering he was almost sort of the funny fat one in, yes. in uh, Parks and Rec, and obviously he's gone on to be somewhat of a stud muffin on the cinema screen. I'm hoping that will be the case when I've done this podcast. I'm hoping to be the, <laughs> the funny fat funny fat one on this podcast and then go on to greater things. That's my the only reason I'm doing it, to be quite honest with you. Luke, Luke I can almost guarantee that that's what's going to happen. Okay, that's fine. I'll listen back to that and remember it, where it came from. But yeah, I would, it's one of those that people don't talk about and it's a shame. I think it had a tiny run on BBC4 when it first came out and then didn't really exist and is now on Sky Comedy. So yeah, that's my number 10. And my number nine is a comedy again. The first three are actually comedies and the next one is The Royal Family because I was living abroad when this was on. I was living in America and feeling quite homesick and I happened to turn this on. We had a channel called BBC America that would sometimes show 
uh, BBC shows, and uh, this was like a warm hug from home. Oh. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe when I watched it that no one had thought to do it before. It's just the most simple thing of sitting down and the comments you make while you're with your family, watching TV. Gogglebox wouldn't exist without this. You know, I was just got, just about to say the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. It's got so much um, again warmth to it, and it's just so relatable. And the conversations they have. I mean, it's it's made me cry on numerous occasions. Yeah. There's a scene in the Christmas special where Carolina Hearn's character, her waters break in the bathroom, and it's yes. her and her dad, and that will never not move me. I could see it a million times. No, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think even kind of, you know, because they, they they tackle so many kind of life's obstacles in the royal family. Obviously, the death of Nan was an absolutely huge one. Uh, you know, the fact that you kind of, you know, have, having babies, you know, kind of, you know, yeah. relationship breakups. I mean, and I'm talking again about breakout stars, the number of people oh. within that show who've gone on to have absolutely incredible. I mean, Sue Johnson and Ricky, Ricky Tomlinson, Tomlinson. Were, were already huge, but obviously Carolina Hearn. Uh, you know, Ralph Little, um, every single one of them has gone on to um, to go on. Jessica, Jessica Hines, in, you know, yeah. incredible career. So, I mean, it, it kind of was a real launch pad, but also just written with precision-tooled detail, but so well done. And that ensemble cast, I think, is possibly one of the best we've ever seen. But I, I think going back to Parks and Rec, I mentioned The Office, and The Office will come up, spoiler alert, later on. But I think... <laughs> The royal family is responsible for that whole shift of comedies where you think there was there were bits of this where you were just watching the meter Twix yeah. and the TV and there was nothing going on. It would the camera would pan around the room. Yeah. And you'd just be watching them watch TV or watching the meter Twix or and I can't imagine commissioning that back in the days where Only Fools and Horses, Blackadder, One Foot in the Grave, all these studio sitcoms were the norm. And then to stick this on must have been quite a, quite a transition for people to get their heads around initially. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it probably was. But I think what, what it did was, I think it, I think it was quite polarising when it first came out because pretty much everybody north of Birmingham absolutely recognised that that was what we did. We sat around as a family, you know, all our furniture was pointed at the TV and that's what we did. That's kind of where we chatted. That's kind of where we, you know, found out about each other's day. That 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 is very much a kind of northern thing. I mean, obviously, I've lived in the South for many years um, and it's not too dissimilar, but I think it's because of this sort of the humour, the gentle ribbing, the kind of the, um, the, the recognisable tropes of the sort of slightly grumpy dad, the kind of the ever caring mother, the kind of the sibling rivalry. I just it just had absolutely everything. So much poignance to it as well, and and just just the inaneness of the conversation. There's a line I always remember where Barbara was sitting on the sofa saying, "Did you guys see that program last night about the Kennedy assassination?" And they say no, and she says, "Oh, that Jackie Kennedy. She had some lovely clothes." <laughs> you know, that's all she's picked up from it, really. <laughs> and that's always made me howl with laughter. Just and did your mum do a Sunday roast today? No, she can't be asked. I don't blame her. It's nearly summer. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> it's incredibly funny and the sort of thing your mum would say. So it yeah. just rang true. It was almost like someone had written down your living room and if you got it, it was the best thing you'd ever seen. No, exactly. Like somebody had put tape recorders in every northern living room. Um, yeah, it, it was just brilliant. Caroline had absolutely peerless in, in her writing and performance and, and sadly missed as well. Of course. The one thing I would say is that I feel like after the 
uh, Queen Queen of Sheba, which was the 2006 episode where Nana died, which is yeah. just an incredible hour of television. They did come back for three more specials, and I feel it lost a lot of its magic because they they didn't seem to be confident enough to keep it just in that living room, and they sent yeah. them on holiday, and they sent them different. And for some reason, it lost a lot of its magic. I, I don't know why that would be, but they seem to not be able to write the characters the same, and that, that's a real shame. When I'd put my list together, I hesitated on my number eight, which is the... Um, the BBC Two comedy Mum, because I'm thinking, am I cheating here? It's very similar in tone, in delivery, in style to the Royal Family. But there's just something about that show that got under my skin and the way it dealt with a relationship between two older people in Leslie Mandel's character, Kathy. Mm. And uh, it, it, I thought it was just brilliantly done so moving as well because you've got the son that's coming to terms with the loss of his father and his mum being on his own ditzy characters all around her the guy who wrote it also wrote him and her which is another show i i value but is about mm. extensively awful people mm. whereas i i think mum with with kathy at the heart of it she's aware how awful the people are around her and is trying to make the best of the life she's got and actually, it's a very hopeful show in a lot of ways. And the relationship between her and Peter Mullen's character is one of the best I've seen of, of an age group Yes, no, it, on television. It, it is lovely. And I think one of the sort of winning strokes of it was the fact that it was so kind of gentle and it kind of it wasn't beating you over the head with, uh, you know, sort of relationship tropes. It just kind of, it no. almost felt as if it was kind of playing out quite naturally. And, and I think a lot of that has to be, go down to the peerless Leslie Manville. I just think she's, yeah. she's brilliant in that. But to be perfectly honest, I've not seen her put a foot wrong in anything I've seen her in. And now she's gone, obviously, stratospheric and is in pretty much anything you switch on the TV or, or cinema at the moment. But, yeah, Mum was a real... I think it was a breakthrough role for her. And, I mean, I, I did notice an awful lot of... of critics Ian Highland to be one in particular that were really shouting from the rooftops about mum mm. and how good it was um and it, I came to it I think probably in series two and just again I, I can only echo your sentiments is the, the the fact that the the really nuanced way in which it showed these relationships and kind of what family life is like and I, I agree with you in terms of that it, it's kind of an evolution on from the royal family where they weren't necessarily stuck in kind of one room or one situation. No. It was very much about family lives of the household and whatever. I just, just beautifully played. And, and, and of course, the writing was just great. Next up is this warrior show on my list. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I mean, if I wrote down my idea of a drama designed to appeal to me, hmm. Deadwood, the HBO Western, would not even be on the piece of paper. Yeah, because it's if you if you go from your list from the top, Parks and Recreation, fa uh, Royal Family, Mum, and then Deadwood. I mean, that is a handbrake yeah. turn of some majesty. Yes. I feel like I had a blackout. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but but I just had to include it because I think it's such an achievement to put that sort of thing on TV. Don't give a lot of context. Speak the way they spoke. The performances, are, again, to use that word, nuanced and layered. And the world is feels so visceral. And I was just blown away by something that I really thought, this isn't for me. That this, you know, this isn't a Jimmy McGovern or a or a Paul Abbott thing. This is David Milch just 
changing scripts on them from one minute to the next, giving them these big diatribes. But I think drama, at the end of the day, is all about whether you connect to the characters. And Ian McShane's character is one of the best depicted on on a, on a TV screen. I think it's yeah. the, the world he inhabits is fascinating to know there are there are elements of truth in there and it just mm-hmm. feels so raw and unpolished. And yeah, I think if it was a blackout, it's a good one because I, I really loved Edward so that, much. That, that's a lovely way of describing it as unpolished because I know when I, because it used to be one of my favourites when I was commuting on a train every day, I would, I would watch an episode of Deadwood when I was coming back home. And it always left you feeling as if you had soil under your nails mm. and, you know, kind of you had dust around your boots. It was quite an immersive show. And because it was, it was, you know, it was warts and all. I mean, it, it didn't hide from anything, whether it was kind of, you know, a, a, a brutal kind of death scene or a, a graphic sex scene. It just, it didn't shy away from anything. And I think that's what made it so kind of eye-opening, if, if you like, because you weren't expecting it, for, especially from an American series. But I feel as if it, you know, sort of decided, right, okay, we're, we're going to go deep down and dirty on this. And, and that's the way it made me feel. I, I really enjoyed it, I have to say. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things that a lot of these things have come back and not been the same. They did a Deadwood movie yeah. just before David Milk sadly passed away. And that, that really felt like it maintained the momentum, the rhythms, the characters and finish the story they wanted to tell better than a fourth season probably would have done. And I think it's eminently rewatchable as well, which is a key for these sort of things. I I think, you know, again, it's not talked about in the same way The Sopranos is and stuff, but I I don't understand that really because it was a bit of a game changer and showed that period pieces weren't all about people in bonnets. They were about people fighting in the dirt. Yeah, and I'm just wondering whether because there was such a there was a massive sea change in terms of how we were able to watch because it was just at the birth of when streaming really started to take hold. Mm. And Mm. I don't know whether it was just an unfortunate timing issue with it that it came out and then all of a sudden Netflix and, you know, Hulu and so many other platforms really started to churn, and Amazon as well, started to churn out lots of programs. Did it just kind of get drowned in the tsunami of other content that we were able to get possibly? It may well have done, and I don't feel it stuck around in the public consciousness enough as something like The Sopranos or no. any of those early HBO shows did. But you talk about Handbrake 10. I mean, to go from, from Lovejoy to Deadwood is quite the jump. Well, yeah, again, and, cosy Sunday night TV. I mean, I was a yeah. huge fan of Lovejoy. I thought it was great. Every, I mean, to be honest, you can go back now and watch Lovejoy. And, you know, it it might be in yeah. 4.3 and it might look a bit dated, but it's still great and the characters are still brilliant. But it, it, Ian McShane, again, one of these one of these expat um, exports that just seems to pick the right role. He doesn't mm. seem to make a wrong turn. Mm. Him and Stephen Graham, I think, seem to have this Midas touch when it comes to roles. Well, I think you'll have heard a lot about my next one, which is obviously <laughs> Sally Wainwright's masterpiece, Happy Valley. Um, it's it's possible that it would have been here without the third series going out at the beginning mm-hmm. of this year. Mm-hmm. Because I'd been a fan of Sally Wainwright for a long time, um, from at home with the Braithwaite's on ITV, and she did a three-parter called Unforgiven with mm-hmm. Saran Jones, which was wonderful. Then she did Scott and Bailey, this dark crime drama with Saran Jones and Leslie Sharp, which was another great achievement. But mm. Happy Valley just seemed to be so personal to her. And in Sarah Lancashire, who she'd worked with previously on Last Tiger in Halifax, she found the perfect person to deliver her style of 
quick fire, no nonsense, humorous, but I mean it really. The the dialogue in this is some of the best you will find on television. The interactions between Catherine and anyone she comes across yeah. is is the best you'll see on television. The performance is transformative. I mean, if you want to talk about an export, she was recently in an HBO Max series uh, where she played the chef, Julia Childs. Mm. And you, you do not see any of Catherine Kaywood in no. that performance, no. nor do you see it in the character she plays, written by Sally Wainwright in Last Tango in Halifax. It is completely her own person. And I think the show won me over with the opening diatribe that she says. She introduces herself to the guy threatening to set himself on fire yep. by saying, my name's Catherine, by the way, I'm a divorcee, I live with Mrs. Stu's, a recovering heroin addict. Yep. I've got two kids, one dead, one that doesn't speak to me, you know, and she just tells you everything <laughs> that, that most dramas would spend the first 45 minutes telling you and then we're off. Yeah, the, the, there's very little baggage given to Basil Exposition in no. in Happy Valley. You are basically sat front and center. I mean, and I think even if we go, if we scoot forward to kind of the third series, which obviously with a six or seven year hiatus between the mm. two was so anticipated, uh, but within the first five minutes, you kind of went, okay, this is where we are. This is this is good. I'm happy. And as she basically solves a crime at the middle in the middle of her empty reservoir while two yes. gnarly old coppers are walking past her and she's shouting over her shoulder who it was. It's it was just just brilliant and if you think about how sarah lancashire's evolution has been possibly mm. to one of the greatest ever female characters i think that's yeah. been written considering Absolutely. she came from being basically raquel in coronation street who was pretty much t as 2d as you could get and and the show has an immense confidence to it it doesn't try and be anything other than what it is and i think you know it's a show that america has taken to bizarrely and it's yes. the most British or British dramas they could ever be. You know, I can they have to watch it with subtitles. Yeah. It may as well be the killing. But yeah. I mean <laughs> it's it's incredibly universal because we care about Catherine. It's amazing how how much great drama and to a degree great comedy comes out of people suffering immense grief. I just found it so powerful. And I will admit here exclusively before I before I transform to the fat one from the famous one. That um that I was sitting at Edinburgh Television Festival in 2017, I think, when the BBC announced there would be more. And I was thinking, that's a terrible mistake. We, the first series was a masterpiece. It told its story. Where can it go mm. from there? And it's one of the few times where I'm like, no, I'm, I'm completely wrong. Sally Wainwright knows exactly what she's doing. Yes. Of course, there's more story to tell. Of course, there needs to be a third. Of course, we just want to spend time in this environment with these people i mean the, the the tenseness of the third series my favorite part of the third series was a conversation between two sisters in a cafe oh it's that just was it was just it was sublime it's absolutely sublime mm. if that's not bafta winning i don't know what will well i don't think there needs to be a baftas now they could just <laughs> give it all to sarah and sally and just be done with it but yeah yeah i, I think it is not just because people say it's one of the best british dramas it's one of the best television dramas of our time and it will stand the test of time for a long, long time. And I love the fact that it didn't lose any of its humour. It could go incredibly dark and then there'd be a conversation about doing yoga causing tremendous wind and stuff and you'd be yeah. laughing. It, it just, it, Sally Wainwright has incredible confidence, incredible skill, and she knows these people 
inside and out. I, I think it's a it's a masterpiece. You are listening to my top 10 TV podcast. Send us your top 10 TV shows, list them from 10 to 1 and we will read out the best. Um, so no surprises here. The next one is The Office, uh, yeah. the original UK Office. It came from our love of seeing Jane McDonald on the cruise, seeing people get clamped in clampers, seeing people get yelled at by the chef in hotel and all these all these things that sprung up when reality TV became big and it used yeah. that. And David Brent, as much as he might great, is when he shows weakness, one of my favorite characters on television, the scene where he is he is told he's going to be let go and his facade that we've been watching for 11 episodes to that point drops away and you see he's a man in desperate need for his job, in desperate need to be liked, in desperate need for a a family and for a connection of his own, in desperate need of anything really that will help him get through the day. He doesn't have anything else going on and he just falls apart in that moment and Mm. Ricky Gervais does that so brilliantly because it's a complete transformation. I think The Office is responsible not just for the US office and it's many it's responsible for a lot of the the, the shift in comedy that we've seen and uh, you know the the royal family I don't think the office would exist without the royal family yeah. and so it, it's got a lot to thank it for but I think you could still to this day if you could find someone who lived it under a rock for this long, you could still stick it on and convince them it, it is a documentary. And they, they just never compromised and it won't come back. And the Christmas special is perfect. And yeah. and I don't know what more I can say about The Office, apart from I think it is one of those those pieces of television that changes things and nothing's ever the same. I remember when The Royal Family came out, Victoria Wood had not long made Dinner Ladies, which was a which was a hit, but she said as soon as she's seen the royal family, the dinner ladies felt dated. And yeah. to think that something like My Family, which was the BBC's stalwart yeah. comedy at the time, was on during the office, it just made it feel incredibly dated. And I don't think studio sitcom outside of not going out was really recovered. No, I think I think you're right. There's a there's a lovely story that Stephen Merchant tells that he was on a train after I think the second episode of The Office went out, and there was a couple of women sat either behind him or opposite him, and they were talking about what they were watching last night. And one woman said, "Oh, I watched this terrible documentary series." Said it was. She said, "I can't remember where it was based, but it was you know some. It's about some paper mill or something." She said, "But the boss is just like oh, he's just intolerable. And if I worked with anyone like them, it'd just be awful. I can't understand why they've made a series about him." And Stephen Merchant just had to basically hide his laughter just because we've won. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it, it, it's done exactly what we wanted it to do because people weren't sure what it was. And I think when when you did realise, it was then appointment to view because you desperately wanted to know what was going to happen with, with Tim. You wanted to know what was going to happen with that relationship. Does it mean if you just think about the number of things that, you know, Martin Freeman, Mackenzie Cook, they've, what they've all gone on to, I mean, just, yeah. just incredible. I mean, basically a breeding ground for success. There is an argument to be made that maybe Ricky Gervais has morphed more into David Brent as he gets older. And is... There is that argument, yes. But, ha- but but I don't think you could take anything away from that initial performance. That The first time we'd ever really seen him, The Office, was, was a moment in time that felt really special to me. You are listening to my top 10 TV podcast. And the next one is a show that I don't know whether many other people will pick. Um... It's certainly one that all my American critics that I follow just champion. 
and it's the Americans, which is um, a drama from FX. It stars Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell, who've since gone on to marry. So it's a happy show, <laughs> and and it is about this couple of Russian spies who, during the eighties, infiltrate the American landscape. They have a family. They live next door to Stan Beeman, who happens to be an FBI agent, and they work undercover at their own travel agency and they go out and um, one of the most well-paced sort of intimate shows that you'll ever watch and it just gets it got under my skin quite quickly it it knows how to do cliffhangers it knows how to go deep into the psyches of each of the characters it took me a while to realize that this married couple for the first couple of seasons, didn't even love each other. They would they were just together for Mother Russia purposes. and contractual yes. agreements and all the rest of it. And that mm. took me a while. And then and then as the kids get older and they start to wonder, does every travel agent go out after ten o'clock at night in the pitch black <laughs> to do a job in the office? Probably not. And that, so that gets more interesting. Fear and paranoia of the U.S. and the Soviet Union wasn't yeah. something I was aware of overtly, and I think that is dealt with very cleverly and carefully and they don't paint anyone the villain margot marching down is brilliant as their handler it's just a show that really got under my skin and i thought it dealt with every inch of itself with such precision and it didn't ever go over the top the soundtrack in this is brilliant it's covered in peter gabriel and all all of his sort of 80s stuff and it's it takes itself remarkably seriously but it is also a family drama at heart and I wish more people had seen it because it would be one of those shows that people would talk about in the same way they talk about a lot of the best shows on television it's a shame that it hasn't had that resonance here right okay so that's the Americans which I'm definitely going to be putting down on my schedule so we're on we're now into your top three Luke so please do give us your third choice third choice is the obvious one it's succession and I love the fact that the more I delve into this, it is basically the darkest British comedy ever written that has ended up on HBO <laughs> and become this Emmy darling and critical loved. And it's basically, and the fact that it came from Jesse Armstrong, who wrote Peep Show and yep. was involved in the thick of it. And it is, it's just an incredible thing to, to become this behemoth, which it absolutely deserves to be. Hmm. And that it isn't a binge show. HBO don't do that model. You had to wait every week to watch it. But to be honest, I needed that week to get my breath back and really process what we'd seen. And again, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm abnormal, but looking at my list as I am now, we've got we've got shows populated by people that you wouldn't want to be stuck in a lift with, let alone (laughs) spend an hour with every week the writing in this is so on point i'll hold my hands up and say i don't half the time i didn't understand all the business stuff that went completely over my head and i was relieved when i heard one of the contributors georgia pritchard say that's kind of the point because I was really feeling quite dim that I couldn't get involved in the conversations about all no, the but takeovers. I think also that's part of Jesse Armstrong's brilliance about this because I I genuinely feel that, you know, Ken, you know, Shiv and uh, Ron, they, they didn't understand half of the business no. speak they were talking either. And no. I think that just, it came through in space. Sometimes Ken would just come out with the most 
on the nose. He would come out with some stuff that you just think nobody in their mm. right mind would say that. He's either yeah. heard it or thinks that's what you say. And I think that's part of the brilliance to which Jesse Armstrong and the writing team um, put, mm. putting it together because it was just... They, I think also your point about not wanting to be in a lift with these people, there is literally nobody in that series that you would stand back and say, yes, I like you can, yeah. it's, I suppose probably the most harmless one of all, but he still got swept into that horrible corporate mm. greed was Greg. Well, then, you know, what? you know, you, you look at that and you look at how venal the whole thing is. And just, you know, the very fact that it, it was all about, I mean, it was just a massive, the whole four seasons were just a massive game mm. of chess. And it yeah. was just people who were trying to manoeuvre and outmaneuver, out trying to outthink and outplay and, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I think I remember watching the first episode where Ken was talking to another business associate. Dewey. Yes. And he just, I mean, he just eviscerated him and, mm. and publicly as well. And the yeah. language that he used was really coarse and quite base. And it was just, you know, and I'm thinking yeah. if I was ever in that situation, would I be cool enough to be able to sit there and take that? Or would I, you know, basically pick him up and take him outside and pummel him? Because it just, there was so much anger and kind of vitriol yeah. in, in how Ken was delivering these lines. I mean, deliciously, he obviously as an actor loved it. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's just, it's, it, and I think it goes down, it will probably go down as one of those series that even if you pick it up in 10 years time, you'll watch it and kind of go, wow. And especially I think because everybody always, always kind of thinks about, right, is it, is it the Murdochs? Yeah. But also it's one of those rare shows that is itself from the very first second. It yeah. came out of the womb, out of the writer's womb. <laughs> completely fully formed it it didn't take time to turn into this massive hit that it was no. it was more that it took us as audience members time to warm up to its rhythms and its pace and its dialogue but it was already very much succession from the very first second that it started to the very end and very few shows can say we started this way we ended this way and we were completely ourselves yeah it yeah, isn't it, one of those where you go or give it a couple of episodes. It is what it is from the off, which is yeah. No, rare. I exactly agree. And the other thing about it, from a from a viewer's point of view, is that you look at it and just just how how expensive it was and how sumptuous, and you felt like you could touch it. You know, you you felt like that those crisp white shirts that both Roman and Kendall wore were probably two hundred dollars a piece. Those mm. those those suits they wore really were cut beautifully. Those jets that they flew around in were proper jets. It, it, and I never felt anything was a facade. I always felt that they just kind of went, oh, right, we're on Mustique on a yacht. Right, we must go to Mustique yeah. and we must hire the biggest yacht yeah. we can find. But my number two, weirdly, has a character's death in it that has stuck with me and still makes me feel sick to my stomach. It's in an episode of Cracker called To Be Somebody from, I think, 95? Mm. I'm not really sure. And it is the episode with Robert Carlyle as as a um, as a Hillsborough survivor who is just traumatized by what he's been through and sets about killing um, Pakistani people and people yeah. of color, and then turns on Christopher Eccleston's David Billsborough Bil when he spots him in the supermarket and. Mm. Stabs him to death, and there's a wonderful, well, awful but wonderful scene where Eccleston says, "This is a dying man's statement. Please get this guy." And the whole office is listening to it. This is crime drama like I had never seen up yeah. to that point. Jim McGovern is one of my favourite screenwriters. I will watch 
everything he ever does because I think he has his finger on the pulse of modern Britain, a particular view of modern Britain that we don't see often enough now. And Cracker is a masterpiece. I mean, Robbie Coltrane's performance in that as Fitz is he's so damaged, he's so complex. Again, he's not a nice person, anywhere near a nice person, but you you care about him because he's wholly human. Yeah. And the and it expl- it, this isn't a who done it, this is a sort of a psychological why done it, and it's never black and white. These aren't awful people committing the crimes. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. It is so layered, it is so dense, it felt so ahead of its time. Yeah. I think it's crackers beautiful. It it's, really it, is beautiful. it's probably one of the I would say the first real kind of uh, that wasn't wasn't directly a cop show, even though obviously a lot mm. of it centered around crime. Um, but it was more about unraveling of a kind of genius's mind. It was, it, you know, it, it almost like it was portentous for things that came along afterwards, where you know things like uh, Lie to Me and then The Mentalist, and there were so many others that kind of followed in the yeah. same vein. But Cracker was absolutely the one that you know set that ball rolling. And, and as you say, mm. I think Robbie Coltrane's performance in it is one. I mean, he was great in everything. I mean, I loved him in Tutti yeah. Frutti. I loved him in, yeah. you know, Harry Potter film. He, he was just great in everything he was in. But uh, my standout out in Cracker itself was actually Barbara Flynn who played his wife. Yeah. I just Incredible. loved her performance Powerful because role. it was it was world weary. She clearly loved him to bits, but was very he was very, very difficult to live with and kind of, you know, obviously a fractured relationship with his kids. It was just perfect. And if you think that that's kind of nigh on 30 years mm. when that came out and just how groundbreaking it was and you know look we see iterations of cracker all the time now it's almost you know oh it's another one of these but when that first came out it was just it was it was as you say totally groundbreaking and but also the fact that it was able to tell its stories in three parts over Mm. an hour and a half each and everyone was so layered you had Lorcan Cranage in there as DCI Jimmy DS Jimmy Beck who didn't recover from Bilbra's death and and ends up doing something really awful and it just felt like a really well told character drama as well. So we'll <laughs> end it. We'll end it with Breaking Bad, which is a show I came to um, slightly later than most people, and it, because it is a story of one man that starts in episode one and carries all the way through to the final episode. There are sixty three in total, I think, and that is one man's story from beginning to end. Hmm. And I, I was absolutely enthralled by it because it is that idea of taking Mister Ordinary hmm. and turning him in, as the creative Vince Gilligan says, it's taking Mister Chips and turning him into Scarface, and that is exactly what you did. Yeah. And you created one of the best. The term is anti-hero, which I, mm. I don't really like, but that's the term that gets lumped in uh, when you talk about Tony Soprano, Don Draper, and 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 now uh, Brian Cranston's mm. uh, Mr. White is that they're anti-heroes. It's amazing. But again, but, again I think it harks back to uh, uh, you know I was mentioning um, a little while ago about actors that choose always choose the right roles, and Brian Cranston yeah. I would say is another one of those people that just has a very he's very shrewd in what mm. he appears in in what what he does the characters that he portrays yeah. he, he seems to have that second sense of being able to know whether something's going to be right for him and you know i think that's that's a that's that's a talent in itself either that or you've got an incredibly good agent but breaking bad is the only show i can think of that felt like they knew what they were doing from day one which isn't true at all i've listened to 
DVD commentaries and mm. and read books and stuff. And they they put a machine gun in his trunk at the start of the fifth season and didn't quite know why it was there or how they were going to use it. And it is used to great effect in the final episode. But yeah. they were always juggling things and working out how we get from here to there. And the performances are so layered. The idea that he's trying for so long to to live this double life. The idea that it's ostensibly a drama about someone with cancer, which is something I'd never seen before, mm. and how that is dealt with. The family dynamics are fascinating. The way that when you rewatch it, which I did again recently, you can sort of see echoes of the man he would become in the man you meet in the first episode because he's very irritable and yeah. and feels like the world owes him more than he was given. Absolutely, it's, yeah. it's so layered. It's just one of the best. It's my number one. So it yeah. is the best TV drama in my opinion. It is Breaking Bad, and anyone who hasn't seen it, it is flies through it. It is so well executed. Everyone behind the camera, it looks stunning. But the way it's shot, it feels very filmic. This is the idea of pig television where things started to feel a bit more like high cinema and cinema yeah. wasn't lagging behind a little bit. You mentioned Breaking Bad and Beautifully Executed. Well, I have to say the same for your top 10. It's been absolutely brilliant. So Parks and Recreation, number 10, Royal Family, Mum, Deadwood, Happy Valley, The Office, The American Succession, Cracker, and at number one, Breaking Bad. Uh, how difficult was it, Luke? Incredibly difficult. Incredibly <laughs> difficult because Breaking Bad and Cracker are always there, regardless that, you know, they'll be on my tombstone, as, you know. But any any other, but all of the others deserve to be there. But I even considered Better Call Saul. Oh, I was going to ask, yeah. What, what a show that was, and a completely different tonally. Like I said, The Bridge. British things like The Lakes, uh, Jimmy McGovern's dramas that starred John Sim, a very young John Sim, and Life on Mars with a slightly older John Sim. Great, <laughs> you know, great, it, great series. It's very difficult, but I think you've you've got a gem of an idea here because I think everybody, whatever they're doing, always wants to talk about their favourite shows. Yeah. And, uh, to be honest, you know, yeah. kind of hats off to you if you, to be able to pull down a list of 10 and a list that's so strong as well. I loved it. I thought it was great. As soon as I you. dropped that into the DMs, I just thought this is going to be great. Yes, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to do. And no, absolutely. And listen, um, talk to us a little bit about the uh, the custard TV. Tell us, tell us what it is, where we can find so, it, and on what you're doing. I, I'm head of a team who basically champions the best of TV. We don't tend to do bad reviews anymore because I've had my fingers burnt by them a few times. So we just <laughs> we just champion the best of TV and try and TV is a strange wilderness now where there's so much good stuff but it's spread around people need a way to navigate through it to the good stuff and i'm hoping through the site they will find reviews of things that they may not even have heard of uh that that will capture their imagination and will turn them on to their uh their new favorite thing we also if you just trying to find something that is perhaps under the radar is a little gem uh, then you need to go to thecustardtv.com. Send us your top 10 TV shows, list them from 10 to 1 and we will read out the best. Well, what a top 10 TV list that was. Thanks to Luke from Custard TV Podcast. Totally brilliant choices. If you've got a top 10 TV list, then find your way to your on mute productions on Insta, Threads and whatever the idiot Musk has named it this week. Send it and we'll read the best ones out. Thanks for listening. Another new episode out next week and in honour of Strictly Come Dancing, Keep watching. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My Top 10 TV Podcast is a Euron Mute original production.